And I won't ask you to applaud her, but I will say that my hat's off to hope for reading the text of Scripture for us this morning. That is a testament to the fact that we do believe that all Scripture is, in fact, inspired by God and profitable to us. So, uh, we are grateful for her reading it for us this morning and, and hearing the Word of God in it. So turn there with me, if you will. Nehemiah chapter 7 is where we'll be this morning. I've heard it said many times that when we get to heaven, we'll likely all be a little surprised by who's there and who's not. And that idea, while it may carry some wisdom concerning the reality of things like hypocrisy, within the church, the trouble is that it's far too general and vague a statement. It's too vague in what it communicates about the legitimacy of being able to clearly define who has saving relationship with God and who does not. It's true that even Jesus taught that there are those who will claim his name and yet find on the last day that he never knew them. Jesus also makes it clear that in the final analysis, there will be those in the church that are both considered wheat and considered chaff to be sorted out. However, it it must be understood that when Jesus said these things, he, he was not giving a general rule to apply that results in our resigning to the fact that discerning who belongs to the Lord is rather ambiguous in the Scriptures. No, when we take into account the context of Jesus' teachings, and when we consider the places where Jesus says things like, you will know them by their fruits, and we consider then even the broader context of the teaching of the New Testament, what we see is that Jesus simply means to communicate that our faculties of discerning such matters are limited. It's worthy of note that in both of the cases that I mentioned here of Jesus, his emphasis is on the fact that there are those who may evade our detection concerning the legitimacy of the salvation that they claim. The emphasis is not, however, concerning the possibility that they, there may be more who belong to him than we think in this life. No, the teaching of Scripture is not ambiguous at all in telling us that God has clearly identified who His people are. And the passage before us is meant to teach us this truth. In fact, if you were to summarize the meaning of this passage, it would be this. God takes great care in identifying who His people are and how they function in this world for His glory. God takes great care in identifying who His people are and how they function in the world for His glory. The the writer of the text accomplishes by way of three movements in the text. Nehemiah records for us, first, the means of the city's protection. Second, he records the measure of the city's population. And then third, he records the means by which the city Prospered, And we'll make our way through the text by way of those movements 
seeing the author's point this morning. Before we dive into the text, however, let's take a moment and pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. I echo my sister's prayer a moment ago. We thank you for the clarity of your word and what we find in it, Lord, that you have identified specific people that belong to you and have served you so well. Lord God, I pray this morning that as we approach the text of Scripture, you would work here among us, God. Work among us to encourage our hearts by the love that is so clear that you so clearly set on display in this passage for your people. And Father, I pray that we would also be confronted in our sin. Lord, help us to see where it is that we are lacking in proper sacrifice for you and to you, Lord. Father, both of these things, I pray, the the comfort that comes from your love and the confrontation that comes at our sin. Lord, I do pray that you would use it to conform us to the image of your Son. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, the first point this morning we find in the text is that the Nehemiah recording the city's protection, the means of the city's protection. First, Nehemiah records the the means of the city's protection. According to verse 1, the wall that was being built thus far in the narrative had been complete. The wall was complete, the doors were set, and some of those who played necessary roles to the function of the city had been appointed. And with that, the narrative moves away from focusing primarily on the task for which Nehemiah came to Jerusalem. The focus now becomes the long-term stability and health of the city. If God's city is to flourish, like all precious things, it must be cared for and protected, we find. So Nehemiah here, he prescribes two ways by which Jerusalem is to be protected. The first is the prescription of God-fearing men. And the second is a prescription of distinct city regulations. In verse 2, Nehemiah tells us, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. Nehemiah was limited in his time to serve as the governor of Jerusalem. If you'll recall, he had agreed with King Artaxerxes that he would return to serve the Persian king in his court. But like all good leaders, he would not lead the city before settling in place leaders who were fit to oversee the health and well-being of the people. As such, he appointed two men to govern the city in his absence. Indeed, the main objective of Nehemiah's mission to to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, it had been accomplished by this time. But infrastructure alone cannot ensure the stability of the city. Qualified leaders must be in place to manage the city and to keep order within it. So, Nehemiah identifies two such men that were competent for such a task. The first of these men was Hanani. 
This man was the only one mentioned by name in chapter 1, verse 2, who, who initially traveled to Susa and made Nehemiah aware of the state of Jerusalem in the first place. This is, he, he brought the state of the people to mind for Nehemiah. And in making such a painstaking journey to do this, Hanani, er, excuse me, uh, Hanani had proven himself to be one who cared greatly for God's people and God's city. This second man, Hananiah, had identified, is identified here as the, the governor of the castle. And this position was one that implied a, a great deal of trust. He was in the immediate service of the Persian king. No doubt, Hananiah had many skills in areas like management and leadership. However, What's so striking here is that the qualification that Nehemiah points to in appointing him for this role has nothing to do with what made him useful to the Persian king. Look at verse 2 with me. What qualifies Hananiah? And, and, and no doubt Hanani as well. What, what qualifies them was this one fact. Look there in verse 2. He was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. If these men were going to be trusted to lead God's people, they must not be known for what the world would consider qualifying. Their, their practical competencies may have played some role in their appointment, but it was certainly not primarily under consideration in their leadership among God's people. What was primary was their faithfulness to God rooted in their fear of God. To, to, to fear God is to live in light of the reality that all things were made by God, that they are sustained by God, and they function for His glory. To, to live in the fear of God is to live in light of this reality. And the fear of God is something that all believers are called to practice. But, but leaders must do so to a degree that above all else, the fear of God is what they're known for. After all, leadership is an exercise in the use of wisdom. And what does Proverbs repeatedly tell us but that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To walk in a manner that holds the, the power and the authority of Almighty God in high esteem is what guards leaders against the fear of man and against the exaltation of self. One can't simultaneously hold a high view of man and a high view of God. One or the other will win out, always. And Nehemiah appoints these men because they're known for perpetually letting a high view of God win out. But to appoint godly men is really not enough. However godly men may be, that godliness is measured in submission to the revealed will of God. Thus, here we find specific instructions for these men to follow in their leading the people of God. Take note here, friends. You know, Greg mentioned last week that pastors possess authority only insofar as they are speaking from the authority of the Word of God. And that's true. 
You could say it another way that, that the leaders of God's people do not have the authority to speak and lead as they see fit. And here in the text, we have an illustration of just that reality. That's not to say that Nehemiah's words here were found in the Old Testament scriptures, but these instructions are clearly consistent with what God's will for his people was. In verse 3, Nehemiah says to Hanani and Hananiah, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. It should be noted that what's described here is distinct from the typical practice of cities in the east. Normally, cities would open their gates at sunrise. But the people of God are not to be governed in a way that is typical of the world. So here we find that men are appointed to care for God's city. And in doing so, they're charged with opening the gates of the city later than usual and locking them earlier than usual. Beyond that, Hanani and Haniah were, they were to appoint guards from among the people who would, who would stand guard both in official positions and others outside their homes. These extra measures were intended to provide a, an additional defense to the city because, as verse 4 says, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. As all leaders of God's people are to do. These leaders are left in Jerusalem and they're left there to submit to the instructions that had been laid out for them. In doing so, they were able to protect God's people from their enemies. At this time, there were many surrounding people groups that posed a very real threat to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the leaders, they weren't to use their own finite and subjective metrics for determining when the city should be opened up and when it should be closed and when these moments should happen in a way that would make the city vulnerable to outsiders. Instead, they were to enforce the objective regulations, which would ensure that by the time others were making entry into the city, those within it were awake and alert. That's why they opened up the city later than normal and shut it earlier than normal. Those in the city should be awake and alert as potential threats may come. And if you haven't made the connection yet for the modern day relevance of this passage, let me just draw it out for you. Nehemiah is is setting up a system here for Jerusalem That's not altogether distinct from the way that the church is to be guarded, friends. The church also is to be guarded from outside influence that would work harm among God's people. God's people throughout all time are to exist in the world, but remain separate and distinct from the world. And church leaders are not to use their own subjective judgments as to how the church is to be governed, or or who gains entry into it. Pastors are simply to uphold the rules and the regulations for such things that are laid out in the Word of God. 
And the church is to be governed in a manner that not just the leaders, but all the church members should be awake and alert, as it were, to outside influences that could work harm among her. We see here that the practices of God's people are to reflect the cares and concerns of God himself. God is concerned to protect those that he has called out of the world from the world. And as Jerusalem was to stand guard against the dangers that lurked just outside her gates, the church also, friends, is to stand guard against the dangers that lurk just outside her fellowship. There are many threats to the church today, as there have been throughout history. In our cultural context, many of them seem and may in fact be pronounced. Social and political issues are in no short supply, and they have a real potential to do harm to the church. But if we submit to the instructions, friends, that God has laid out for us in His Word concerning how to guard the gate, as it were, then we will be saved much headache and heartache in the days ahead. Because once worldly influence and opposition makes entry in the gates, things get blurry and get complicated fast. This is precisely why we find the Apostle Paul writing as he does in 1 Corinthians 5, to rouse the church members there who had neglected their duty to stand guard against the worldliness that had crept into the church. There in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 13, he says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. He says essentially, what happens in the world is of no concern to him. But protecting the purity of the church should be of utmost concern to us. Because church tolerating sin of any kind is what makes the church most vulnerable to attacks from without and decay from within. It undermines the very purpose for which God made the church, which is to be a people called out from among the world to display His glory within the world. And contrary to what some might think, it, it's not a hatred of those in the world that motivates us to guard against the world. It's a passion for the people of God to flourish in submission to the designs and purposes of God so that what results is the glory of God. So church, we make it a priority to maintain the protection of the people of God by way of appointing God-fearing leaders and submitting to God's designs as we guard the gates together. This is what we see from this first movement of the text. But in order for the gates to be guarded effectively, it must be known who belongs inside and who belongs outside the gates. And that's exactly what we see Nehemiah determining next. The second movement of the text is Nehemiah recording 
the measure of the city's population. Here, Nehemiah sets out to determine not only the number of the city's inhabitants, but who has the right to inhabit the city. Yet, we must observe from the text that this endeavor did not arise out of Nehemiah's mind. In verse 5, Nehemiah tells us, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. So it was God's purpose that this account be taken of his covenant people. A list written down of those who belonged to him. God was commissioning a census here, friends. And it was not just to include those who lived in Jerusalem. It was to account for all the Israelites who had come out of captivity to live again in the land of Judah. And in their enrollment, Nehemiah, he compares those now seeking rightful citizenship with those who were registered when Zerubbabel first led the uh, first wave of captives out of captivity and back to Judah. Uh, Look at the end of verse 5 and on into verse 6 with me. Nehemiah says, I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles from whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. And he goes on to list the families by name and record their number. And what follows is, is almost verbatim what Ezra records for us in Ezra chapter 2. Now, you, you may ask, all right, well, fine and dandy, but what's the importance of a list like this? And, and how in the world do we find relevance in it for New Testament believers? Well, to understand that, we have to consider how this event is situated in the immediate context and in, in the broader context of the book. The record of Ezra is copied here to show that those who enrolled in Nehemiah's census were cross-checked with the genealogies recorded in Ezra. This was done so that people's claim as true Israelites could be verified. They were to prove that they were in fact descended from the ancestors that they claimed. And by so doing, they were to prove that they had rights among the covenant people of God. And this was important because what Nehemiah will ultimately lead the people to is a a nationwide relocation effort to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. But those who would populate God's city should not be taken from those outside of covenant relationship with God. If the gates of Jerusalem were to be locked at specific times to guard against those who might seek to do God's people's harm, it would be unthinkable to allow enemies of God to make their home within her walls. And, in fact, as we read through the text, we find that there was indeed a separation made of those that were not able to prove that they should be numbered among God's people. Look at verse 61 with me. The following were those who came up from Tel Melah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adana, 
and Emir. But they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. He goes on to list them. And then he says that there are also those who claim to be Levites but cannot prove their genealogy. So they were excluded from serving as priests. After naming them, he says in verse 64, These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And this is consistent with God's character throughout the Scriptures, friends. The Lord is always found to commit himself to a specific people. You remember what he said to Israel when he brought them at first out of Egyptian captivity in Exodus chapter 19. He says there, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's consistent with God's character. A specific people we find God always marks out for Himself. And so, a list is made here in Nehemiah 7 to determine who was a part of God's covenant people and who was not. But, like the situation with the gates, the, the identification of the true Israelites was not primarily about a disdain for those outside of Israel. It was primarily about God's relationship with His people. The census, in one sense, is an act of love. and It's an act of and display of God's love towards His people, saying, mark it down. These are my people. They belong to me. And all the rights and privileges of citizenship among my people should be granted to them. It's helpful to remember that God Himself is the one who initiated the census. Nehemiah, nor anyone else, thought, well, we should make it clear who belongs to God and, and, and who has rights and privileges among the people of God. No. Verse 5, Nehemiah says, My God put into my heart to carry out the census. Of course, this again is consistent with the character of God, who is always the one who initiates taking His people to Himself. Now, I'm reminded here of 1 John chapter 4, and verse 19. It reads simply, We love because He first loved us. Yet, as much as the love of God for His people is on display through this census, we cannot lose sight of the use for which Nehemiah eventually makes of this list. In chapter 11, we'll find that Nehemiah makes use of this list in order to call upon the children of Israel to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. We've already seen from verse 4 that the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. But in Zechariah chapter 8, God makes clear that this is not His will for His capital city. It's there. God promises to restore the liveliness of the city 
And his promise culminates in his declaration. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness, he says. So then, in effort to see God's promises fulfilled, Nehemiah will go on to ask people to relocate and to reorient their lives. Now, we'll save that discussion for chapter 11. But, but make note here, church, that, that, that this too was a purpose of the census. It, it was certainly for God to confer rights and privileges upon those who were His, but it was also to make known who was responsible to labor to see the plans and purposes of God fulfilled. The children of God are enlisted not only to receive rights in the kingdom of God, but also responsibilities in the kingdom of God. Friends, this is also a clear illustration of why we practice church membership. You know, some may rail against the idea of church membership, saying, I don't need, you know, my name to be on some church roll to tell me I'm a Christian. And while I would argue against that, with the exception of some pioneering, you know, pioneering missionary contexts, it suffices it to say that throughout the scriptures, both Old Testament and New, we find that God's design is for His people to be enrolled in His covenant community. This is true for a number of reasons that we don't have time to exhaust today, but, but the text demands that we acknowledge at least two of these reasons in, in a broad sense. First, enrollment in God's covenant community, which in our epoch of time is the church. Okay, The first reason that we enroll in God's covenant community is that it offers benefits of fellowship with God that is impossible to experience otherwise. And the second reason that we enroll in the covenant community of God is that it helps to clarify your specific role of service in the accomplishment of God's plans and purposes in the world. And if you're curious about those things, then I'd love to talk to you about it after the service. But quickly, we need to move to the third movement of the text. In the third movement of the text, we find a record of the means by which the city prospered. The means by which the city prospered. What we find in verses uh, 66 on is actually a continuation of this record uh, of Ezra from Ezra chapter 2. After doing the math for us and providing a, a total number of the assembly of Israel, along with their animals, we find that they contributed to the work of God. We find here... Their contributions that were made to the resettlement of the people in Jerusalem. And these are the contributions of those that uh, had, had come out of captivity with Zerubbabel and were primarily given for the rebuilding of the temple, which Ezra had overseen. And here, friends, we see the, the, the principle that we outlined a moment ago. We see it drawn out in another way. We observed just a moment ago that to be numbered among God's people is 
not only to receive rights, but responsibilities. And the free will offerings recorded here in verses 70 through 72 reinforce that idea. Upon their return to Jerusalem, the people of God rightly sought to reestablish the temple worship of God that was laid out in the law of Moses. While they were still subjects of the Persian king, by God's grace, they were granted the freedom to live once again as a distinct people, marked not by the culture around them, but by the worship of the one true and living God. And yet, while they were granted the freedom to do this, they were not granted aid in doing this. If they were to establish the right worship of God, it was a task that they would have to labor and sacrifice for themselves. As such, we find that they freely gave of what they had been blessed with in order to see God's promises and purposes fulfilled. And we see in this record a a pattern of giving that the Scriptures command. Those who had much, gave much. And those who had less, gave sacrificially of what they could. This is consistent with Paul's instruction in Romans chapter 12. When he's outlining there the various ways that church members are to use their gifting, he says, those who contribute in generosity... Notice, he doesn't say those who give are limited to those who are wealthy. No, he says that those who give are to do so generously. Generously is a relative term. It means different things for different people as they're blessed by God. And we observe that here in the text. That some gave more, others gave what they could. But the principle is that the people of God are responsible to fund the work of God. And what else could be expected? As we receive the infinite, innumerable blessings of the grace of God, the natural response is to give of what we have in every way. We give of our time to worship and serve the Lord. We give of our talents to worship and serve the Lord. And it's only natural that we give of our treasures to worship and serve the Lord as well. You know, earlier this week, I was talking the passage over with Neil, and I was sharing some of my observations that I had made of the text. And and when I got to this point, he said, oh yeah, well that's just the logical progression, right? As we receive the gift of God's grace, what else is there but to respond by giving as a means of worship to Him? And in that, Neil summarized a myriad of biblical passages that teach exactly that principle. In the record that Ezra and Nehemiah have preserved for us, we observe how the people of God make contribution in in hopes of rebuilding the temple. And they do this not so that they could experience intimate, internal fellowship with God, but just so that they could make sacrifice and receive atonement for sins through the mediation of the priest. How much more then, church, should we take great pains to sacrifice for the work of God? We are not 
those who live under the law, which the author of Hebrews says is but a shadow of the good things to come and can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered make perfect those who draw near. No. We're those who Peter says have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Friends, if if our giving of our time, our talents, and our treasures, if our giving is to be measured in proportion to the grace that we've been given in Christ, the question becomes not what should we give, but rather what of what we have could we not give to the work of God in worship to God? And I'm convinced that that's the question that the text demands that I leave you with this morning. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Oh God, we thank you that you mark out your people, Lord. That you call to yourself a specific people. And those people, Father, have rights and privileges in your covenant community. Oh God, we thank you for all of the blessings that you have given us that we experience in life together. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to embrace the fact that we have not only been given rights and responsibility, or excuse me, rights and, and privileges, Lord, but responsibilities as well. We pray, God, that you would forge in us a people willing to sacrifice for the work of God among us. And in so doing, Lord, help us to identify with the sacrifice of Christ and grow in conformity to Him. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.